Our lesson today will be entitled Redemption of the Firstborn. This lesson could be equally as well titled The Law of the Firstborn, but we're going to be talking more expressly about redemption of the firstborn, so we want to uh, title it Redemption of the Firstborn. By way of introduction, this is a very broad subject, very deep. We do not claim to have all the answers by any means. There may be more questions raised than will be answered in this lesson. So we humbly submit it for correction and for uh, whatever else it may need. Uh, and so we proceed somewhat in the fear of God, knowing that we know so little about what obviously there is so much to know with regard to the redemption of the firstborn. You will find that there is a service in our customized prayer book for the service that we will be having here today on the redemption of the firstborn. What many people do not uh, always remember is that the little prayer book that we have is a customized prayer book designed especially, customized for this congregation or others who may want to follow the pattern established in the prayer book. It is uniquely designed, uh, probably very, very seldom duplicated anywhere on earth, uh, it would be very difficult to find a service book that has a service called the Redemption of the Firstborn. It would be most difficult to find a, a prayer book that would contain a service for firstfruits, for the assembling of the males, for the Passover Memorial Communion, and a whole variety of other very important biblical topics that often involve the entire congregation. So everyone really should become familiar with this customized prayer book, which is designed for Israelites, but it also serves very well for individual families. There are many prayers that are especially designed and devoted for family worship. So it serves very well for those who would like to uh, have a guide, service guide, in your home study. You will find in Hebrews 9.1 and Romans 9.4 the mention of what is called divine service. It has to do with lawful worship. How do Israelites approach <clears throat> a holy God and this little prayer book is our feeble efforts here at the Church of Israel to establish lawful worship. So we'll be observing the law of the firstborn here today, but we thought it might be appropriate to look more closely at the, the redemption or the law of the firstborn before we actually have the service. Uh, this is not a compulsory requirement on the part of anyone. Uh, everyone will make their own independent decision on the matter 
of the redemption of the firstborn, and we will trust that the Holy Spirit together with the Word of God will enable you to make that decision. And if not today, sometime in the future, uh, you uh, can pursue that as you uh, independently discover and work out in your own mind. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. The service at hand, of course, does involve the entire congregation in some manner, and particularly those who are firstborn males. But without further words, let us pray. God, our Father, we humbly approach your throne and your altar this morning. Thou who dwellest between the cherubims and those angelic voices that sing continually before the throne, holy, 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 who are we, Lord God, but mere mortals made of dust and clay that we should approach the holiness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We do so in fear and trembling, Father in heaven. We humbly acknowledge that we know so little about so much to know with regard to the subject at hand, and we ask for the intervention of the Holy Spirit, not only upon the Word of God, and not only upon the scriptures that will be shared, but we pray that every person, every man and woman, boy and girl, every infant child in the womb, out of the womb, in this body today will be enveloped with the power of the Holy Spirit. Gracious Father, we claim to know nothing apart from the truth of your word, and we plead for understanding, for we know so little. And Father in heaven, we are so humble that you would open our minds and our hearts to teach us from the word of God, the clear teaching of the redemption of the firstborn. And we plead in advance, Father in heaven, that if there be anything said in this lesson that is improper or not exactly correct scripturally, that you would prompt us, uh, Father, and help us on our way, on our journey, that we may say only the things that would be for the pure and undefiled uh, hearts and minds of those who love you, serve you, and seek to walk in the ways of truth and righteousness. And this we ask in the blessed name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. All of us are familiar with the beautiful verse found in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter number, uh, I believe it's number 16. It could be number 6. Where we are challenged to walk in the old pathways. Now, there would be very few congregations, probably in our generation, that are going to be talking about the redemption of the firstborn. But after all, we're called to be a peculiar people, so I don't think it's unusual that we should be talking about the redemption of the firstborn, because it is a law that was given to ancient Israel. Now, the question would arise, of course, in the minds of modern Christian people all across uh, America and the Western world, in fact, they would ask the question, why in the world are we talking about 
an Old Testament law called the redemption of the firstborn when we are New Testament Christians. Well, the fact of the matter is, beloved, that the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is an Israelite book. And God makes no distinction from the Old to the New Testament with regard to the people of the book. The Bible is a seamless book. It has no intersectional uh, changes with regard to God or the people that God called from the beginning. So the Old Covenant was between God and Israel. The New Covenant is still a covenant between God and Israel. And the law of the firstborn, like so much else in the Bible, has everything to do with Israel and God's plan for them. And of course, through them, wherever they live and dwell on this earth, the earth will be blessed. So in some form, the entire world is blessed by the presence of God's Israel people who bring light to the world. Israelites light up the world when they are in unison with Christ their King. Now there are many places to begin this study, beloved. And one way to do that would be to start with the prayer book, calling your attention to page number 129, which is titled, The Redemption of the Firstborn, and Order of Worship, that begins with this prayer. And I'd like for us, if you don't mind, to join our voices in the recitation of the prayer found on page one. 29, and this would be good for all of us, because I think we need to have uh, earnest, open hearts to know that we're treading on very sacred ground, and it's kind of like a farmer going to, to, into a field that has not been farmed and has been la uh, laying fallow for many years, and uh, sometimes it's not easy to plow that field because it's fallow ground for many years, uncultivated. Let's pray together that God will help us in the uh, effort to know more about the redemption of the firstborn. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thy covenant children, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do come into this thy sanctuary for the purpose of redeeming the firstborn sons of these parents we ask that thou wilt pour out thy blessings upon this service, that all that is done in this sanctuary may be for the honor and dominion of thy great name and kingdom. And this we ask through the merits of thy Son and our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, who with thee and the Holy Spirit ruleth one God, world without end. Amen. As we think about the law of the firstborn this morning, I'm very tempted to turn, of course, to the foundational verses in the Old Testament, but I'd like to uh, begin in the New Testament, and if you would be so kind this morning to kind of follow along, I'd like to turn to the Gospel uh, according to St. Luke. If you'll turn there to the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter number two, we'll go to St. Luke's Gospel 
uh, chapter number 2, and we will begin reading at verse number 21. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 21. If you're there in your Bible, we'll begin reading, and uh, I'd like to have as many as are inclined to read with me. Beginning at verse 21, Luke chapter 2. And what eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, we'll stop there, hold your place in Luke's gospel, and go to Matthew chapter number, chapter 1. Go to Matthew chapter 1. And we'll begin reading now at verse 18. But let us not forget that all the previous verses in Matthew chapter number 1 give the genealogical lineage of the flesh that Jesus Christ came into the world uh, as a incarnate God to live in. He was an Israelite and his lineage is given with regard to his paternal descent in Matthew chapter number one. His maternal descent from his mother is given in Luke's gospel chapter three. But that's not our uh, concern here today. Let's go to verse 18, Matthew chapter one, and we'll read together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away publicly. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now that's as far as we need to read, but coming back to Luke 2 and verse number uh, 21, we read where he was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb, and we just uh, confirmed that in Matthew's gospel. So we'll read on in Luke 2, verse 22. When the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. Now, uh, emphasizing the word that every male that opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. We're talking about the firstborn male that is born in the lineage of a family. That firstborn son will, of course, carry forward the, fa the family name in the descent, the paternal descent of the family. 
it will be carried forth by the, the first son that is born in that family to offer a sacrifice, verse 24, according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, typically, theologians in a seminary would say to their students, all of the laws pertaining to ancient Israel, though they have standing in the New Testament, and no theologian worth his biblical salt would ever deny that almost every law in the Old Testament has a forward movement through the New Testament in some manner. They simply do not want to really deal with that. So for the most part, they have tried to resolve the whole uh, system of Old Testament law by saying, well, there is no temple and there is no priesthood. And since there is no temple, no gathering point like Jerusalem, where the temple was located, and there's no Levitical priesthood uh, with Aaron at the pyramid of that priesthood, uh, it is purposeless to even consider all the laws of ancient Israel as having any real relevance to modern Christianity. Now what is sad, beloved, is that almost every sacrament, almost every part of the organized theological underpinnings of modern Christianity, in any denomination you want to look at, you will find provisions within every denomination that are inexplicably tied back to ancient Israel. They simply do not wish to go down that road and make the connection because it would raise far more questions than most theologians, uh, theologians would want to deal with. Now I begin with the story of Jesus here when his parents, Joseph and Mary, brought their firstborn son. Now you'll notice in Luke's gospel, chapter number two, that when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name being called Jesus, named by the angel, that eight-day circumcision was obviously performed at home. Now, how do we know that? Because we have instruction in the book of Leviticus chapter 12 that it was not until the 40th day under the law of purification that they would bring the child with the mother and they would present that child uh, unto uh, the Lord in thanksgiving. So the circumcision was done at home. Now the question arises, when was the redemption of that firstborn son, when was that appropriated? Was it at the eighth day circumcision? Is that when the redemption took place? Or did it take place at a later, a, later a later time? Now that question is a debatable one, and people have weighed in on that uh, historically 
without any clear resolution. But we will see this as we look at something more closely at Luke's gospel. Notice that they circumcised Jesus on the eighth day of his life. I think we could all agree to that. And then it says in verse 22, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished. Now, for the benefit of anyone in the congregation that may wonder, well, what were the days of the law of purification? What is that all about? Keep your place in Luke's gospel, and let's go now to the book of Leviticus, chapter number 12, and we'll look at that real quickly. Let's go to Leviticus chapter number 12. In Leviticus chapter number 12, we will read beginning in verse 1. I'm in Leviticus 12 verse 1. And the Lord Jehovah spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, not the world. Tell the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed, and born a man-child. Now this is just generally a man-child. Then she shall be unclean seven days according to the days of her purification. For her infirmity shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now this is obviously what Joseph and Mary did with Jesus. Notice then in verse 4, She shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. So if we add th thirty-three days on to seven days, we come up with forty days. That math, I believe, is quite simple. She shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary. That would speak of the temple or the tent of meeting in the Old Testament age of the tabernacle. So it's the central place of worship. Now, the folks that believe that since there is no temple and no priesthood, they would dismiss this altogether and say it's irrelevant now, has no meaning or purpose. But we know that the New Testament has appointed designated places for God's people to assemble. If I turn to one of the epistles of the New Testament, very often it will say, to the church located at. So it's not as though God disbanded the meeting place, the assembly. It's wherever God has ordained a place for his people to gather. And unless I have read my New Testament incorrectly, God has called, he has called uh, bishops, priests or elders and deacons so we continue to have a ministry. It's not as though we have no ministry in the world today. We do. All Israel people that are organized into some kind of a church generally mostly will have an order of ministers. So the idea of dispensing with the uh, the, all the laws simply because they say we have no temple, no gathering place, and no uh, priesthood, that is really not a worthy uh, way to escape the 
obedience to God's word. So now back to Leviticus 12. It goes on to describe if a woman bears a female child. Now all of this, the law of purification, I'm not going to go any further into this except that every family needs to know about these things because in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, there is a specific instruction to all husbands that they need to live with their wives according to what? According to knowledge. And a husband's knowledge of these laws is central to helping and assisting in the health of the woman he married. Very important. These laws have a real bearing on the health of the mother. All of the laws pertaining to the male in the Old Testament have a complementary blessing for the woman who that man marries. So when it says, husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge, that's not simply a trite saying in 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter is absolutely informing husbands that they dare not take a wife without, without having some godly knowledge about, about this woman and how she functions within the law of God because it will have a direct bearing on the health of that uh, dear uh, wife and mother and perhaps even her children and could even impact uh, the whole family. So now, with those thoughts in mind, let's summarize. When Joseph and Mary produced Jesus, they brought a firstborn male. Jesus broke the matrix, that is, he was the first child born to the Virgin Mary. Now, we have no absolute biblical proof that, G that Mary bore children thereafter. Most people will affirm that she did, but there's always been a position held that she did not bear children, uh, after uh, Jesus, but that is not the subject here today. We'll assume that she did for the dis discussion here this morning. But Joseph and Mary then brought Jesus, firstly to be circumcised. Then, you'll notice, after he had been circumcised, when the law of purification had been completed, and 40 days had expired, they brought Jesus to present him before the temple priest. That happened to be Simeon, and Simeon gave a marvelous prophecy as he held baby Jesus. Now, if you go back to Luke's gospel, there's not a word about Joseph paying a redemption or making a redemption for Jesus. Why did Joseph and Mary not redeem Jesus? They paid no, uh, no redemption for his uh, required uh, provision there in the law of redemption. Why? 
Well, the reason is because Jesus himself is going to be fulfilling the law of redemption. He himself is going to be the redeemer of his people. Here's what we all need to know, folks. There is no subject in the Bible that has any great significance that does not exalt the person of Jesus Christ. The preeminence of Christ rises above all else in the law of kinsman redemption. He is the kinsman redeemer of his people. Firstly, remember that Jesus himself is called a firstborn. Now, Jesus, we know, was in possession of two natures. He was very God and very man. In the incarnate nature of Christ, he is very God and very man. In the beginning was the Word, the Word, the Logos, was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. And verse 14 of John 1, And the Word was made, help me, flesh. We've already determined that the flesh of Jesus was that of the seed of Abraham. Hebrews 2 verse 16 confirms that. Matthew chapter 1 is his genealogy after the father, Luke 3 after the mother. So all of that is very confirmed in Scripture. So what we need to do now is to confirm that Jesus, as the firstborn, look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, who is the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth. Help me. Visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him, for him. He is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn. Firstborn. I'm in Colossians chapter 1. The Bible tells us repetitively in the New Testament that Jesus is the firstborn of God's children. Now, we're not talking about his deity. We're talking about his manhood, his physical fleshly body. In the two natures of Christ, they are inseparably, inseparably united without commingling and without confusing the two. The na two natures of Christ are very distinctly uh, laid out in the New Testament canon of Scripture. Now, I've said all of this to remind us then that Jesus is the firstborn. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29 or beginning at verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good, help me, to them which are thee called, according to his purpose, for whom he did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
the firstborn, Romans 8, 29, confirms that Jesus again is firstborn. Now, I'm not going to multiply all the New Testament verses that confirm that Jesus is firstborn, but he is the firstborn of Adam's race. But moreover, he is the firstborn of those that God called out of Adam. God separated a tributary out of the great racial river of Adam kind, and this tributary that God separated out of Adam he called Israel, and in Exodus 4 and verse 22, Israel is called God's firstborn. The collective body of Israel is called God's firstborn people. Now, that is significant because God claimed a firstfruit of the Adamkind race. We might want to call Israel God's tithe from the from the race of Adam to be his. Exodus chapter 4 calls Israel God's firstborn. So Jesus is the firstborn of all. Israel is the firstborn of the race of Adam. And then moving forward in that concept, we know that we figure in that today and all true believing, God-fearing Israelites, the world over figure, they're part of this because in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, the church is called the church of the, help me, firstborn. The church of God is called the church of the firstborn. We could be called today, we could be calling ourselves, instead of the church of Israel, we could be calling ourselves the church of the firstborn. Now that would elicit even more eyebrows being raised than probably the name church of Israel. So we choose not to do that because it is not quite as generic as the word Israel. Firstborn is not quite as generic in the opinion of most people that, uh, as the, the word firstborn just doesn't elicit the kind of response that the word Israel would, would uh, elicit. Now, when we think of Jesus being firstborn, Israel being firstborn out of Adam's family, the church comes out of Israel. Israel is the church. The church is Israel. Now, that statement would never be accepted in a typical modern seminary. They would never accept the idea that Israel is the church. In evangelical theological cemeteries, I mean seminaries, they're going to insist that Israel is in one track. The multiracial Gentile church is another track. And they're going to insist that there's one woman named Israel that belongs to the Old Testament people that God is going to reclaim someday, restore back to her status. But the woman reserved to be the church is the bride of a multiracial, multicultural Gentile church. That's evangelical Christianity. 
makes no sense at all because God married one woman. The name was Israel in the Old Testament. The bride of the New Testament that will meet Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb is redeemed Israel. Same people. Now, having said all that, remember that Passover, by name, technically, theologically, is the Feast of Redemption. It's Passover is redemption. That's when God initiated redemption. So everything I've set up to this point in time, and I forgot to turn the clock on, so what time is it? Oh, good heavens. So we've got to uh, really hurry along now. And let me just say this now, church. I said earlier that this is a very broad subject. You could stand in front of Stockton Lake with a teacup and it might take you a while to dip out that lake. To dip out the truth of firstborn is like standing in front of a big lake of water with a teacup and we're just dipping a few uh, teacupfuls out. So let's move along here and let me just simply have you turn now to the book of Exodus chapter number 12. You're all familiar with the fact that on the night of the Passover, the firstborn of every family was passed over because there was blood applied to the doorpost and the lintels. We're all aware of that. Passover, the angel passed over all the dwellings where the blood of the Passover lamb appeared. You'll also notice that the blood, the blood is what signified the deliverance of a family. It was the, it was the blood of the firstborn male lamb that had been graciously applied by the father of the household so the angel of death would pass over that house. You'll also remember that the last plague that was visited upon Egypt was the death of the firstborn. It was not until the death of the firstborn in ancient Egypt that the heart of Pharaoh had been so completely melted down and the hardness had been removed that he let Israel go. He released Israel only after the death of his own son, the heir to the throne, and the new God that was to replace the old God, Pharaoh, when he perished. Now, think about it this way. When Jesus died at Calvary, he died as a firstborn lamb. Now, if you, if, you, if you think that this resonates with you, let me know by some countenance on your face. Or maybe an expression of some kind. I'm trying to read my congregational eyes. Uh, I'm trying to read the faces. When Jesus died at Calvary, folks, he died as a firstborn lamb. Firstborn, without blemish, without taint of sin, he was a sinless lamb of God. His blood was pure and undefiled. It was not until the blood of Jesus 
spilled out that we were released from the bondage of sin, death, hell, and the grave. The blood of Jesus was what releases us from a sentence of death and judgment. It was the same release, in a sense, that Israel received from the ancient uh, exodus out of Egypt when finally the heart of Pharaoh was so, so moved at the death of all those firstborn Egyptian sons and his own, all the death of the firstborn animals, that he said, be gone, go. Take your children, take your flocks, just go. He released them. And that's what the blood of Christ does for you and I. So this is the, the redemption of the firstborn is no trifling matter. The blood of Jesus as the firstborn is what redeems, buys us back from a sentence of death, hell, and the grave. And it's not until Jesus actually gives his life in death as a firstborn, Jesus died. Now, we applied the blood of the lamb in the Old Testament to all the, the houses to save the sons. As a firstborn son, the precious firstborn son of Joseph and Mary, that son dies that all the rest of Israel might be redeemed and born. So now, when we turn to the prayer book this morning, which we will do now, we're going to read a little bit from the prayer book. And as we do that, this prayer book service is essentially built from the book of Exodus, the book of redemption. It's built from primarily the book of Exodus chapter 12, chapter 13, and all the related verses that are scattered intermittently throughout the Bible. As we open our prayer books to page 129, the opening declaration in this prayer book reads, Beloved in Jesus Christ, this special service called the Redemption of the Firstborn is central to the faith of covenant people redeemed by their faith in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. On this occasion, parents who have chosen to redeem their firstborn sons make an important confirmation of their faith. This covenant body of Christians needs to highlight the following truths regarding the redemption of the firstborn. Now this next little statement is quite important. The redemption of the firstborn establishes God's claim to ownership. The firstborn belongs to God, and the law of redemption is the means by which the Christian family acknowledges God's claim to their firstborn son. Now we've said before, we will say it again, this is not a compulsory time. We're, we're just talking about the law of the firstborn 
for those who wish to participate. Keep your prayer book open and turn simultaneously to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter number 13. I'm reading now from verse 1, chapter 13, the book of redemption, the book of Exodus, chapter 13, verse 1. And the Lord Jehovah spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify me unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in the which he came out from Egypt out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from the place. From this place there shall no leavened bread be eaten. Now all through this chapter, there are vital truths of information about the firstborn. And I would be very remiss if I did not urge everyone to study every verse of Exodus chapter 13, which is the classic chapter on the law of the firstborn, remembering, of course, that there are many, many other intermittent verses in the Bible that pertain to this subject. Now, we'll go back to page 130 of the prayer book. The redemption of the firstborn establishes the means by which the family name is carried forth by the eldest son born to the family. Doesn't matter how many daughters you may have, the first son that appears in the family lineage is going to be the builder of the family name, and he will be uh, the, uh, counted as the, the uh, firstborn son in that family. The redemption of the firstborn establishes the means by which the family wealth and property can be passed from one generation to the other. And why is that? Because you will, you will remember that God's law in the Bible provides a double portion for the eldest son. And why is that? Because he's going to be charged with the responsibility of caring for the parents in their old age. Now we're talking about how God perfectly organizes the family structure, but that doesn't always mean that people follow that as you so well know. Now I'm gonna drop down to this paragraph. The redemption of the firstborn makes provision for the future safety and care of the parents in their old age Historically, the eldest son gave a double portion of the wealth and property of the parents and was responsible for their care and provision in old age. Now, I'd also remind the congregation that the redemption of the firstborn does establish responsibility for the orderly progression of the family, the government of that family, and targets the firstborn to stand accountable for leadership. Now, I think most of you know that if you have an older son in the family, even if it's not a firstborn son, it, it may be third or fourth in the line of descent, you place a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of that young man. At least I believe that's true. How many confirm that in your own raising of children? You, you look to that oldest child, even if it's a daughter, you expect more from them 
in a sense, than you will from the rest of the children. Now, I, I, I may be speaking uh, out of order here, but I think that's the way it sometimes, more often than not, is. The older children bear a greater load because the parents are depending on them, particularly as later siblings come along. Am I correct in that? I think that's true. And the eldest son is anticipated, expected to be sort of the leader. He, he is the one that the father and mother look to as being the more, the more responsible member of that family. That's typically the way a firstborn son uh, is examined and looked at as, as we understand Scripture. Now I'm reading on. The redemption of the firstborn establishes responsibility for the orderly progression of family government, targets the firstborn to stand accountable for leadership, and reduces the risk of sibling rivalry within the family structure. Now you'll remember in Jacob's family, there was sibling rivalry. Now you'll recall that Reuben was the eldest son among all the 12. However, later in life, Reuben forfeited that birthright because of a very serious and moral infraction, you'll remember. And then that right of firstborn passed to Joseph, who was the firstborn of the second wife. If you remember, Deuteronomy 21 said that in a polygamous, polygamous marriage, where a man took more than one wife, he could never pass over the firstborn of the wife that he hated, if she, was a if she bore him the firstborn son, he might not like that wife, and he may have favoritism toward another son from another wife, but he's forbidden to pass over the firstborn of the hated wife. You'll read that in Deuteronomy 21. So there's a whole lot of things that are talked about regarding this subject. Now, the redemption of the firstborn emphasizes the maternal line of the man and in the orderly progression of the family's government and genealogical line of descent. Moreover, the redemption of the firstborn confirms responsibility in the moral behavior of the firstborn son and holds the firstborn to greater responsibility. Because typically, correct me if I'm wrong, Parents will, will tell the young man, the first, the oldest son, look, you're going to be the example. You'll be the example in our family and the rest of these children will be looking to you as the example. If you fail, they will have a good justification for, for, them, for themselves and their failure, right? That's just the way it works. Bottom of page 130. Historically, the firstborn male enjoyed privileges of which he was not to be deprived. I've already mentioned Deuteronomy 21, verse 16. Firstborn could not barter away his birthright, as Esau did, Genesis 25, 23. Or, nor could he be deprived of it, 
without due regard, as we read in 1 Chronicles 5, 1 through 3, where Joseph replaced Reuben, who had disgraced his position. The title of firstborn was appropriated to Israel, I've already told you that, and to Ephraim, Jeremiah 31, 9, designates the Messiah to be firstborn. We've been through that. Scripture does establish that the firstborn son is the beginning of the father's strength. Very first mention of firstborn is Genesis 49, 3, when Jacob says, Reuben, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Now, God is a, is a mysterious God. He's marvelous. He's wonderful. And very often, you know that God passes over a firstborn. God passed over Cain with good reason. Another story in preference to Abel, who Cain had slain, so he had to wait for Seth. The, the, the name Seth means substitute for Abel. God passed over Reuben, firstborn, in preference to, help me, Joseph. God passed over Esau, who sold his birthright, in preference for Jacob. God passed over David's brother, who was that? All of his brothers, uh, all the brothers of David were passed over and God went and chose the last member of Jesse's family. So God is no respecter of persons and God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart and makes the choice. But typically, God chooses the firstborn. That's his choice. Choice of the firstborn. Now, we read also that Scripture established the masculine nature of the firstborn. So there's no confusing about gender in the law of redemption. God's word clearly defines gender. The firstborn son from a man's loin was his firstborn son, the beginning of his strength. Exodus 13, verse 12. Now here's a fundamental law. Thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix and every fat firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast the males shall be the Lord's. Thou shalt, uh, let's look at um, Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine. This is a fundamentally powerful verse. If you don't mark any other verse, mark this one. Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine. Thou shalt not delay. The word delay might be important. Thou shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors. The firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. Now, it, it's assumed that this verse that says don't delay 
don't delay the offering of the first ripened fruits. And then it follows with the idea of the firstborn son. The word delay seems to be appropriate there. So it seems that, that this law of the firstborn should follow in a rather rapid progression the birth of the firstborn male. What say you? It would seem that that would be the way that it should be. However, that isn't the way it always works out because what if people find out about this law later and most people, many people do. Now, drop down to the bottom of page 131 and notice in Numbers 18 verses 15 and 16, everything that openeth the matrix in all flesh which they bring unto the Lord, whether it be of men or of beasts, shall be thine. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man shalt thou surely redeem. It doesn't designate, does not designate one tribe above another. All firstborn males are going to be redeemed, and those that are to be redeemed from a month old now, that would seem to indicate that redemption could either... Now, this is speculation, church. I'm waving a wave of a flag of speculation. Redemption seems to take place either on the eighth day of circumcision or on the 40th day when the son is brought together with the parents... Uh, before the altar to give God acknowledgement and thanksgiving. Because it's referencing here those that are to be redeemed from a month old. Shalt thou redeem according to thine estimation for the money of five shekels. Now five shekels would be the equivalent in the year 2023. Roughly, if you break it down, it's going to be nine pre-1965 quarters, or it would be two silver rounds. Now, we need to acknowledge something here. This has nothing to do with the salvation of a child. Hello? We're not talking about the salvation of a child at all. We're talking about the designated ownership of God to the firstborn of every male child in a family. That God is establishing his right of ownership. Think of it this way. God demands ownership of money with regard to payment of what? The tithe. God requires the ownership of your time by way of what? Sabbath. God requires the first fruits of your garden by way of offering of first fruits at Pentecost. And again, just as Jesus was the firstborn son, together with Israel being designated as a firstborn, 
at the Feast of Redemption at Passover, Jesus is the first fruits of Pentecost. Every ancient holy day in ancient Israel exalted the preeminence of Jesus in some form. So that's important because Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father are all highly elevated at the totality of the ancient festivals of ancient Israel. Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. But there's a resurrected company that follows in the great resurrection of the, of the first resurrection from the dead. So all of that has a lot of eschatological meaning. All the festivals are, are really, the way you really understand eschatology at the end of time. But that's a whole other subject. So now what we're going to do, we are going to follow the bottom of page 131. Scripture declares in Numbers 18, 15, 16, Everything that openeth the matrix in all flesh, which they bring unto the Lord, whether it be of men or of beasts, shall be thine. So the firstborn of man shall thou surely redeem, and the parents would pay five shekels, which corresponds to nine pre-65, 1965 quarters, or two silver rounds. So at this time, we're going to say that all the parents who choose of their own volition to redeem their firstborn sons, if you would please gather at the rear of the sanctuary. If all fathers and mothers that are going to redeem a child would gather at the rear of the sanctuary, we will now proceed to have the redemption of the firstborn. <laughs> 